0: Resorts, homes, and a newly built hospital have been washed away. No electricity, nothing whatsoever.
1: We need to be
2: prepared for the future.
0: I'm just holding on for dear life here. This isn't fun.
2: Pacific prepared. Pacific prepared. Plan this time before disaster strike. Every natural disaster gets worse.
1: What happens when something goes wrong, and how do they respond to it?
0: And make sure everyone's safety comes first. Save what for dream, you must ready.
1: Clearing roads, restoring critical
0: infrastructure. Eventually I know it's gonna hit. It's only a matter of time. Helping your community. Helping your family.
2: Helping you. Pacific prepared. Pacific prepared.
0: Pacific prepared. Pacific prepared.
1: Hi, I'm Fred Hooper and this is Pacific Prepared. Hi, I'm Maui Leo Tumose from National 2AP in Samoa.
3: And this week Pacific Prepared is being produced from Samoa, so all the stories are gonna have a little flavour of Samoa with them during this broadcast. Pacific Prepared is a show all about natural disasters, climate change and traditional knowledge and how those things are all connected, and you'll hear about that through stories from right across the Pacific. Obviously, heavily focused on Samoa this week. Each week we work with local reporters. They're on the ground letting us know what's happening in this space and what people want to hear about. On today's show, we might start with Maui Lutamose from 2 ap Maui, welcome to Pacific Prepared. It's great to see you in person.
1: Thank you. It's great to see you as well, Fred. And it's great to see you in our, in our country, Samoa. Is this your first time here?
3: It is my first time travelling to Samoa, so thanks for having me, it's fantastic. Yeah. So at the moment we're standing on your sort of front your front veranda here at um two AP in Samoa. How long have you been walking up these stairs behind me here for
1: Um I just came in work uh just right after Cyclone Offer that hit Samoa that devastated a lot uh parts of this country and then I started in January 1991 and there was another uh, cyclone, cyclone valve mm-hmm. that devastated uh, some parts of Sava'i yeah. at the village of Falealupo. Yes and uh, that's where I got my experience working during the cyclones and natural disasters. Mm-hmm. Yeah but uh, you what know...
3: Was, was Had you been working in journalism Prior to, to ninety one, like prior to that, that cyclone offer,
1: no, I worked. I started working as an announcer, yeah, okay. for Radio Two AP, and then uh, when cyclone hit Samoa, when cyclone came, our former boss um, sent us all ladies sent all ladies home and leave the guys here to do the broadcasting. Mm-hmm. So that's what he did, you know, most of the times when, when natural disasters hit Samoa.
3: And what was the sort of thinking around doing that? Why, why did that happen?
1: You know, um, I think, um, our former boss thought that uh, the women are responsible to look after the, the children and look after the parents and people at home. I think that's why, um, he always sent us home when natural disaster hit our country. Mm. And how
3: have sort of attitudes changed to reporting on natural disasters since that time? Like, have things changed a lot for you?
1: Yes, things have changed because um, uh, management have changed. And uh, when they came in, uh, right now we are short of staff. So, um, there was a, a cyclone, a one night cyclone that hit Samoa, uh, recently. And I remember that I stayed back to work because there was nobody else, um, Because most of our former staff left the the work, and they went to overseas, and some people they changed their jobs, Mm. and that's why I stayed with other uh, women, and other guys to work uh, during that um, one day cyclone. Yeah. Yeah.
3: And what do you remember about those initial cyclones and disasters for you as a journalist? What what was it like for you?
1: The experience I got from that, that I, um, I had to, I had the courage mm-hmm. to work during natural disasters because it's not easy. You know, when you are away from home, from your children, from your family, and you stayed here at the, the office, you know, as long as the disaster hit the country. So you have to stay mm-hmm. and work. Mm. you know until it uh, it finished
3: yeah mm.
1: and do you feel like
3: a lot of pressure as a journalist as well to to tell people in samoa but also outside of samoa what's actually happening when there's a natural disaster here
1: no it's not really pressure you know it's really a good job because right. this is a passion mm. and i really love um working during cyclones and other natural disasters and reporting to the people overseas and also the country because during natural disasters everyone tune into two A P Yeah. That's Mm. the purpose of this national radio. That's why the government are still um funding two A P because this is the voice of the nation. Mm. Yeah. So everyone listen to two A P. You know, when disaster strike, everyone tune in to National Radio two A P so They can, uh, understand and know that all the information, the weather bulletins, yeah, yeah, from the, from the mid service. Yeah.
3: You got a a big smile on your face then when you're talking about everyone tuning into 2AP. You must, you must just love it.
1: Yes, yes. I do love, I, I really love, um, talking to people because they are list, they are all listening. Mm -hmm. And then they, uh, most of the people, they ring into 2AP and, uh, Thanks us, uh, for broadcasting during the, the cyclone. Yes. Yeah, okay. Because, uh, you know, during, during natural disasters, no one wants to, to go somewhere. No one wants to work. You know, uh, all people, they want to, uh, be together with their family, you know, uh, with their children, with their spouse and everybody at home. But, you don't want to come and work here, mm. you know, during cyclone. You want to be there. Yeah. So if you come to work, sometimes it's it's stressful because you're thinking of your family, you're thinking of your children, your children. So what we do is to keep contact, keep in touch with them. How are you doing? Yeah, how's how's the cyclone there at the village, especially the village because I do live in the village. Mm-hmm. So I I I come from the village every day to work and go back. Yeah. Yeah, sometimes it's stressful, but it's really a, a, a good job for me mm-hmm. because I've been for this work a long time ago. Yeah. It's almost 30 years now. Yeah.
3: What do you think has changed in on your reporting on climate change in 30 years? I mean, how has it changed from today, from 1991 until today?
1: I think the, the technology... Is really changed right now because if we uh, if there's a cyclone again that hits Samoa um, everybody's got mobile yeah they just uh, go on the mobile and then tune in to Zeno app that's 2AP is on Zeno app yeah and tune in because um, in the years in the years past uh, everybody has to go to the shop and buy a small a portable small radio yeah. so that and and buy a lot of uh batteries yeah. so that they can tune in to 2AP for uh, weather bulletins right. during cycling during natural disasters yeah.
3: and do you think that people have a good understanding of what climate change is not only in Samoa but outside of Samoa as well what climate change is and how it's affecting people on the ground
1: Yes, uh because um the New York, the national emergency um uh disaster in Samoa, um they um did a lot of training for our, our Samoan people in the rural and the urban areas uh so that people can understand how to prepare when another um natural disaster hits Samoa right. so people understand whenever you know the tsunami in 2009 uh, that's where a lot of people have learned how to prepare and uh, stay alert when a natural disaster hits Samoa so whenever uh, a strong earthquake happen uh, during this time everybody um, go away Everybody move away no. from their from their homes, yeah. They understand, they know, they, they are aware of what's going to happen yeah. uh, when a strong earthquake hit the country mm. and what, what comes after. Yeah. Mm.
3: And when, you know, you live in a village in Samoa, what, what do people say to you when you see them in the villages and they're living, you know, very close to the coastline and they probably feel the effects of rising sea levels and... Um, white, you know, storm surges and that kind of thing. What do they say to you when you go to the villages and, and they're experiencing climate change firsthand? Uh,
1: in my village, I'm talking about my village, um, a lot of people that, uh, have lived, um, near, close to the sea, uh, they, they, a lot of them have moved. Mm. They moved uplands. Is, yes. uh, that they started after the the tsunami in 2009. A lot of people have built their home in in the upper, upper lands. Yes, so uh, I think a lot of people in my village they understand the if affects uh, how natural disaster affect people mm. when it happens. Is yes.
2: yeah.
0: what's your plan? Are you ready to leave your home? Plan now, before disaster strikes. Pacific prepared.
3: The fish markets here in Samoa are packed with people selling fresh fish caught off the coast. There's lots of stainless steel benches with fish laid out on display for buyers who are wandering past. The people selling these fish have a pretty good understanding of climate change and natural disasters because they rely on the weather. We went for a walk to find out more.
2: I'm Beverly Keppel from Wailima. Yeah. Um, so it's been um, over 20 years I'm doing this. Uh, yeah, uh, fish ring fishing industries Mm. what
3: sort of um, disasters have you seen while you've been living in Samoa
2: Um, it's uh, the climate change we have to really um, take really good care of it Mm. so during the tsunamis the tsunamis and plus the floods all over the place so it's very um, it's very hard for us to catch um, fish Mm. Right. So maybe we we do catch, but not much. So just
3: during those times of
2: tsunami. Yes, yeah. yes, yes, not not mm, not much. So that's the price uh a reading going up at the moment because of not much fish. So that's it. Mm, mm,
3: and what mm. sort of other um, sort of natural disasters have you seen since you lived in Samoa?
2: Yes, the tsunami and um, what does the, the the cyclones, yeah, the raining, when it comes uh, flooding all over the Samoa, and it's very, um, it affects the industries, uh, especially the, the fishermen. They're not going out. The boat will still hold on to it, but not going out to catch some more fish. Mm-hmm. So, those are the, the, the changes of the weather. So, we have to, to stay foot not going out to catch fish Mm. so those are the problems we're doing uh, the 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 cyclones and uh, tsunami even the climate change at the moment uh, it's very affects the 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 industries
3: what's been your experience of natural disasters and climate change since you've been living in samoa
0: Okay, I think for the last uh, five to ten years, um, a lot has changed uh, when it comes to climate change. I guess this is a problem not only for us in Samoa, but for our neighboring friends, um, countries of the Pacific, and worldwide. Because there's been a lot of change in climate patterns nowadays, especially um, for this uh, us here. Like, I mean, the fishing industry, it has impacted our service, and in terms of uh, fishing, the the fishing industry in Samoa. Mm. So, it, it has impacted in so many ways, and yeah. we've seen the change. Merely like, um, almost every week there's a change. Um, right. Really? In, in the climate, yeah. And what is it... In Samoa.
3: And, and do the changes come for you? So Just to give it a bit of context, so we're sitting in a fish market in Samoa in a, up here, and in front of us at the moment is You've got a whole bench full of fresh fish and you're sort of waving it with um, a palm is it a palm leaf? palm leaf? Yeah, you're sort of waving the flies off with a palm leaf. And this this is you know this is full of people doing the exact same thing this morning selling their fish. So, when it impacts your industry, does it is it just during the disaster or is it like effects of climate change that happen over time or how does it actually affect your industry?
0: Um. Like I said, uh, like I mentioned earlier, it, it's like every, every day or every week, there's, a, it, 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 there's always a change in the weather. Mm. Depends, um, because we've, um, we've seen the change and we've experienced it in terms of the catches. Um, uh, so it's been a changes from time to time. Um, there was one time, um, the boys, like, for example, when they go fishing, they come with, um, you know, great catch or huge, Uh, collection or you know the types of different fish but lately we've seen that uh, we've experienced it too us the boat fish um, boat owners we've experienced that there's a small amount uh, and not all like you know and that's that's how you know that climate uh, change has impacted this industry so yeah
3: How long have you been selling fish at this market for?
0: Um, Close to 10 years now. Right. Yeah.
3: Yeah. You've had a good good time to understand what the sort of normal levels are of fish, I guess, right?
0: Yeah, yes. Um, You know, um, us in Samoa, I guess um, that goes to our neighboring friends as well. We live in, especially in the rural areas, and growing up we live um, subsistence living, like, you know, the farming and... The men are um, in, the, in the plantation or, or go out fishing, so it's like a norm for us, yeah. like no fishing and all that, so yeah.
2: The time to prepare is now, not right before an emergency.
0: No electricity, nothing whatsoever. You are listening to Pacific Prepared.
3: After natural disasters or trauma of some kind, sometimes anniversaries of that event can be difficult. With the increasing number of natural disasters right across the Pacific, there's people who are turning their focus to helping people recover from these events.
4: I'm a Talo Seattle, Alefeo based out in Aotearoa, New Zealand. I'm an Associate Professor of Psychology at Massey University. Yeah.
3: What does your work actually look like? What do you, you know, if, if we were to walk around after a disaster, during a disaster, where would, you kind of, where would your research fit in within that space?
4: Yeah, yeah. Um, if I go back, actually, probably a better thing is just to kind of tell you how it all started okay. for me. Like, and it's funny that we're actually here in Samoa because that's really where, um, disaster took off for me. Um, 2009, uh, we've just really commemorated the tsunami, um, 29th of October, um, 2023. But basically on that date, I was in New Zealand. I got a call from the Ministry of Health. Uh, and basically they, they said Sam was requesting two Samoan speaking psychologists um, to be on their team over here. And that was really how I, that was my foray into disasters. So um, for us as psychologists, we really don't, um, at that time, um, we're not really first responders. Like, you know, you have your... Um, search and rescue, you have your medical teams that all come over Um, psychs and psychological first aid is generally much further down the track like, um, and so I think coming very early on was a bit of a shock to my system Um, but in a way it actually I think set a new precedent for disasters um, because, yeah sorry So
3: had you worked in disasters previous to that? That was your first First interaction?
4: First first time, Mm -hmm. yeah um first time coming over but not first time as a psychologist being put in different kinds of environments so i'm an educational psychologist by background um, but i've worked in clinical settings um youth um youth suicide prevention settings so um, community basically um and not my first time in samoa either because prior to the tsunami i was actually doing some basic counseling training uh, with the Samoan umbrella of non-governmental organization sango so was very familiar with Samoa, and so coming over at that time was actually a really, I think, at the moment, if I reflect on it, was uh, fortuitous, uh, was real a godsend because I had already had that experience coming over and new people in the community. So, um, if I fast forward now <laughs> into the almost two decades now, really, you know, um, being in this whole area of disasters. Um, I think for me what I do now is what I call disaster response research you know or um, research response in climates of change you know so it doesn't matter what whether it's a disaster humanitarian response um, and everything is connected to climate change right in terms of the severe weather events that we're seeing now um, that whole area is really what I'm now working a lot more and, and my current Rutherford Discovery Fellow actually focuses on redefining the humanitarian landscape, um, really picking up the invisibility of our Pacific diaspora as uh, first responders because essentially we're already connected. Um, who's the first one that normally responds in a disaster? It's your family right? It's your kin. So Samoans who may not be born here but are all over in Australia in New Zealand and America, they've already got connections. You know, they're already remitting money. So that remittance, the way they're going to respond, the way they're going to mobilise, um, that's not often um, visible in our traditional uh, governmental sectors. So it's,
3: yeah, it's kind of, I guess, informalized, right? It's not right. not formalised.
4: Yeah. yeah, yeah, very informal. Mm-hmm. Um, but what I'm trying to do is make it more visible make the landscape visible i know us aid now has a diasporic um, aid element to what they look they're looking at and Julie that comes down to if you think about it like the haiti um earth, the disaster that happened there right i think america committed hundreds of millions and still haven't spent the most of that and yet the haitian diaspora committed i think they sent in that very immediate in the first year, almost two billion. So, wow. it just goes to show here.
3: Well, how much did that 2009 event for you change what you do and how you think about your work as a psychologist?
4: Oh, massively, you know, that that really was a different trajectory <laughs> altogether. Um, I think for me, what I realized and recognized now is that there's a lot more engagement that we're required in the psychology space to understand how people um, not only recover and respond, but how communities mobilize and how we can actually support communities prior to disaster, right? So my thing is, having worked in prisons as well, if the state of a nation is, is, <laughs> is not good prior to a disaster, following a disaster is going to be worse, right? So, because you're going to be exacerbating the issues that were, not good in the beginning right so you see for example in Aotearoa, New Zealand ram raids has taken off where young people are just um, really in in, (laughs) at the end of the day they've got nothing to do so if we're not if we didn't have anything for them prior to a disaster after disaster is going to be worse So same as family violence right? If we've got domestic violence um, On the rise Here or if um, suicide Is on the rise here it's going to be worse After disaster and that sort of information Is really Important for us in the I I believe in the psychological research response base to actually make it more available. And comms is so important. Communications, I mean, I cannot emphasise how important that is. During a disaster, most people are really, the scientists especially, they're really full on and, you know, trying to understand what's happened. Like you take the volcanic eruption once in a lifetime event in Tonga and all our scientists were, you know, really full-on trying to respond to that i got caught into a t-surge meeting which is all of our top volcanologists and geoscientists in Aotearoa New Zealand and i thought well (laughs) what could i possibly bring to this table very early on in the piece and all i simply said to them was well at the end, they had invited me to um, to make a comment, and I said, look, this is great information that I'm listening to, amazing work that you're undertaking, but I'm also aware of a Tongan diaspora community in Auckland who are ready to mobilize. They're, they're, they're getting ready, they're sending things across. So what of the information that you've now been discussing that are the top three things that you think is important for this type of community to know? Because they're sending things. So, what would you send if it was your family, right? And they went, oh, great question. <laughs> I thought, so has it been done before? Like, has this. Type-? So, long story short, I had one of my PhD students who's doing his doctorate in creative arts um, and design develop an infographic, and we had the Tongan um, community, the late Princess Seuluk-tapu, um translate it. Uh, and so essentially what it was was it was looking at the ashfall. So the ashfall, um, initially was said that it was toxic, but one of our community partners, her husband is actually a Tongan coffee farmer. Her and her husband, Emmeline and Alibati, are coffee farmers. And he said, No, oh no, the ashfall is what we use. We actually use the ashfall for our crops. So <laughs> on that, um, the scientists Wanted on the navy ship that went over to send uh, whatever the kit that they did to go and test this ashfall, and sure enough, when it came back, it wasn't toxic. Mm. It was actually really good, and the scientists were buzzing. But at the same time, we were, we managed to get key messages about the immediate effect of the ashfall masks. So there were top. There were three things that we had on that infographic that people. Um, that was translated for the communities and then for the communities in Aotearoa New Zealand instead of having to pack you know massive amounts of um where you know lots of things that may not have been useful in the immediate stage this group just pivoted their food boxes that they were already doing for Covid they already had a food hub that they used to make up big food boxes for people they just used those food boxes and they sent those so instead of they didn't change anything that they were doing. They just put the infographic in the box and they sent it over. And um, from there, these scientists have now, you know, seen the, ama- <laughs> the amazing work. And, I mean, none of that had actually happened in any other disaster prior.
3: Thanks to co2 for that interview while we're here in Samoa.
1: We need to be prepared for the future.
2: Helping you stay safe.
1: We have built a seawall two times, but it did no good. What happens when something goes wrong and how do they respond to it?
2: Plan this time before disaster strike. Every natural disaster gets worse. Pacific Prepared.
3: Pacific Prepared. Pacific Prepared.
2: Pacific Prepared.
3: Thanks to Samoa National Radio 2 AP for hosting Pacific Prepared this week and Amaui Lutamose for her assistance with the program as usual. Pacific Prepared is supported with funding from the Australian Government's Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade. Any views expressed do not necessarily represent those of the Australian Government. It's produced and distributed in partnership with Radio Australia and networks across the Pacific, including Radio New Zealand Pacific, National Broadcasting Corporation of Papua New Guinea, Palau Wave Radio, Fijian Broadcasting Corporation, Samoa National Radio 2AP, Solomon Islands Broadcasting Corporation and Tonga Broadcasting Commission. Part of the aim of this program is to start conversations about natural disasters, climate change and how traditional knowledge links them all together. My name's Fred Hooper. Please share any information you've learned today and stay safe. This has been Pacific Prepared coming to you from Samoa.